She said, the world will be a healthier, safer, more secure place when women have an equal seat at the table of leadership. And I said, Mom, what's this all about? Hello, and welcome to season two of the Permanente Medicine Podcast. I'm Chris Grant, your host and Chief Operating Officer of the Permanente Federation. I'm very excited for today's recording because I have Dr. Richard Carmona, the former United States Surgeon General and current Chief of Health Innovation for Canyon Ranch. Good afternoon, Rich, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Chris. Wonderful to be with you again. It's been far too long. It has been. And you have quite an incredible life story and have accomplished more in one lifetime than many could in five. In fact, you're a story that I often tell, including to my own children. Your life story has been explained to my family multiple times as as you and I became friends many years ago. You grew up in an immigrant family in New York City's Spanish Harlem. You experienced homelessness, hunger, and health disparities. High school dropout, combat-decorated Vietnam veteran, successful physician, and police officer are all words that can be used to describe you at different points in your life. Few can carry only one of those badges, and yet you carry all of them. Are there certain aspects of your childhood and your young adulthood that were paramount in guiding you down these paths? You know, none of us get through this life alone. No man is an island. I think back at the the mentors and the people who sometimes saved me from myself, starting with my mom. Mm -hmm. She didn't have any higher education, but she believed in this country and its greatness, and she spent most of her free hours at the library reading, taught herself languages, knew more about geopolitics than any politician I know. I ended up being my mother's son. My father, nice man, but a street guy. I never really got to know him. He was there and he wasn't there. But mom really was the glue. And then my grandmother, my abuelita, was in Spanish as grandma, she was the matriarch of the family. And, you know, when we didn't have money, she made sure we, the kids ate. But, you know, there were times when the rent wasn't paid and we ended up in the street. And we got scattered around, friends and family, and found a place to live for a while until my mother and father got their acts back together. And then we got another apartment. So I would say my mom is the first one that probably was most important that uh, as I think back, I, I would say as I get older, she gets smarter. And um, she made me become a student of learning. She'd make us sit down every night and she'd have books and she'd ask us questions, my two brothers, my sister and I. And she'd say things to me that I didn't understand. And the one I still talk about when I speak, I was maybe 12, 13 years old. She said, the world will be a healthier, safer, more secure place when women have an equal seat at the table of leadership. And I said, Mom, what's this all about? And decades later, I go, oh, my God, how smart she was. She saw diversity before it was politically correct. She was an emancipated woman before people talked about that stuff. Obviously, your your upbringing would have sunk a lot of individuals. But you, it seemed to give strength and purpose and meaning. Tell me a little bit about that upbringing and those hardships that prepared you for the many roles that you've had in your lifetime? I would say, Chris, that it built character, it built resilience. We talk today a lot about resilience, being able to survive through adversity. But I would also say that on my block, I didn't know any high school graduates. Everybody was struggling. Mm -hmm. Nobody had a car and nobody was taking big vacations. We went out in the street and we played. We played stickball. 
We went down to the park and played. Parents weren't responsible for our extracurricular activities. You just went out and played. I often tell people I learned to swim in the Harlem River, which is why I'm so healthy, because I've been exposed to every pathogen <laughs> known to mankind. You, but, yeah. you received the original immunization. <laughs> there you go, the original immunization <laughs> against all hazards. Right. But I was just one of a lot of kids in the street. We were all shared poverty. We all shared the struggles of immigrant families. Unfortunately, most of them didn't do as well as I did and took different paths. Right. In fact, I would <clears throat> say that there's few that rose to the prominence that you did. So there's a lot of kids today that are living with the same hardships that you endured. <clears throat> what advice might you give to a young kid growing up in Harlem today or here on the streets of Oakland to give them the resiliency and the courage to carry on and, in mm -hmm. fact, to make something substantive of themselves. What I would say, stay focused. Irrespective of the challenges we have from administration to administration, politics, local, state, national, and global, it's a great country. It's a place where st people still fight to come here because they have opportunity. For those of us who've had the privilege to travel the world and represent the United States in the military and civilian positions and so on, you meet these people. They'll give up everything to come here, to stay up all hours, work two or three jobs, all to make it better for their children. And that next generation then owns a business, gets a degree, becomes taxpayers. I mean, that's the beauty of America. It's not perfect. We're still struggling. We are a democracy that continues in evolution. But don't get distracted because of the day's events that knock you down. The only difference between a person that succeeds and one who fails is the one that succeeds gets up one more time. That's it. Keep getting up. I've heard you speak on so many topics over the years and read your papers from your days as the U.S. Surgeon General. And one of the critically important topics in healthcare today is adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. What role do you think government and healthcare have in serving kids that have experienced adverse childhood events? I would say there's a multifactorial approach to these issues. Government specifically, and if, if we want to get granular, breaking it down local, state, national level, has an opportunity and a responsibility to put in place infrastructure that allows children to appreciate their greatest potential, whatever that potential may be. And that may mean making sure that poor kids have access to healthy foods, safe schools to recreate, opportunities to grow in many different ways by exposure to different culture, to the arts, to music, all of those things. And those should not be things that are only available to the wealthy or the middle class because this incubator out there of struggling people who have great potential we just have to get them on the right path and give them the right exposure to the right opportunities that can be transformational in their life. So I think that's what government needs to do. You know, in our country, we do a fairly good job. There's still the partisanship and the craziness that goes on. But again, don't lose sight of the fact that there's no place in the world where you can start out with almost nothing and become successful. But you'll have to work at it. That's great advice. <clears throat> We've talked a lot about your childhood and the critical role your mother played and your grandmother and the environment that you grew up in. Let's move a bit forward. Mm -hmm. You've had many different positions in the medical field throughout your career. Yeah. You've been a paramedic. You've been a registered nurse. You've been a physician, and you've been the Surgeon General. What did you observe about the medical system from each of these venues and perspectives? 
It's a great question, Chris, and I often rationalize my life by saying, it just took me a little longer so I could try all of these different positions and work my way through the system so I have a better understanding of it. The experiences I had from childhood on uh, were ones that complemented my academic education later and in graduate school, learning the theory behind what I saw. I know what health disparities are and social determinants of health mm -hmm. because having walked in those shoes. So in, in a lot of ways, I'm thankful that I took that road uh, less traveled and persisted in it because I brought all of that forward with me and I think it helped me to be a better father, a better physician and health professional need president and really a better surgeon general when sitting at the national table as health policy is being made and good-hearted people having ideas but not understanding what it's really like to go to bed hungry. And when I was able to sit at that table with elected and appointed officials to generate policy, my thought was always, how do I add value to this discussion? And a lot of the value was, I had academic credentials now, as my colleagues did, but not many people had the experience. And to bring the experience forward and say how the systems work, and not only in traditional health, but I can remember when we were standing up Department of Homeland Security, mm -hmm. and they were talking about surge capacity and how the system is going to work. Most of the people at the table had never worked in an EMS system at a lower level, and a fire, EMS, first responder, police officer. But understanding how all those things come together in an incident command system to protect a larger community when a disaster occurs. So I'm thankful that I've had all of those experiences, and I use them every day to try and bring value to everything I do, including the public boards and private boards that you and I sit on. You started, interestingly, a career in law enforcement. Um, where you became a peace officer of the SWAT division. Tell me a little bit about that, and what well, was your passion for law enforcement? Let me start from the beginning. I, I couldn't get into college because I had a GED. I never took SATs or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But again, a critical juncture in my life, my high school counselors who tried to keep me in high school when I dropped out. I was an athlete. Every year I'd be playing some sport, but then they found out I wasn't in class, so I'd be forced off the team. So by the time I get to senior year in high school, I'm taking freshman and sophomore classes and not very well. Didn't go to school too much. And yet these two counselors both passed away, Mr. Grant and Mr. DeBlau, who I idolized. They never gave up on me. They kept sending me letters. They say, you know, you dropped out. You shouldn't have. You have great potential. And so they sent me letters in Vietnam, and they would be very supportive, and they would say, you know, I know this is a terrible thing, and, you know, if you make it out of this, and I still have the letters, you know, when you come back, you need to get your education because there's so much more you can do. So when I came back, I had applied, and I wasn't able to get in any place, but then Mr. Blau called me and said, we just had a conversation with the associate dean at Bronx Community College, who happens to be one of your former gym instructors at the high school. Wow. And you can get in there on an open enrollment program for combat veterans, and they don't care if you have a GED. So the only thing is they give you a year to matriculate. And if you do, you're, you're in. If not, you're out. Mm -hmm. Because of my military training, because of my focus and discipline to complete a mission, I became an A student. And I worked a lot of jobs because I had to support myself. I taught scuba diving. I taught skydiving. I was an ocean lifeguard. But all the skills I had were skills I got in the military, right. in special forces. And so when I moved to California, that continued. And ultimately, I uh, went to UCSF, as you know, went to medical school. And, and to the kids that are listening, I finished medical school in three years instead of four. I graduated number one in my class, got the gold cane, 
So if you think it ain't possible, it's possible, okay? But I was never the smartest kid in the class. I was the most focused and disciplined kid in the class. A lot of it was for my military. And so once I got all my training, because then I trained as a general vascular surgeon, I subspecialized in trauma burns and critical care. I eventually got, you know, a master's degree. But when I went to Arizona to specifically start the first trauma and emergency medical system, I had to aggregate all these resources, police, fire, EMS, how do they work together? How do they surge in an emergency? Helicopters, planes. And so the law enforcement guy said, okay, well, you have to be our medical director for the rescue unit, the air rescue. I said, well, yeah, I've done that in special forces, sure. But then when I go train with them and they're at the range, I ended up being firearms instructor. And they said, well, why don't you just get your certification as a police officer again, and then you can be one of us when you go out. So I said, all right, I'll do this for a year and I'll get it done. Well, 30 years later, I was still doing it. So I actually had two jobs. I went in at first as a medical director for law enforcement and fire. But then because of my background, I kept getting more and more drawn into the tactical side. And then I became from, went from medical director to actually the tactical team leader of the SWAT team. I was a homicide detective for a little while, but I wanted to stay on SWAT and you couldn't do both. And so that's how it happened. I mean, I didn't plan it, but these opportunities kept arising. And I said, okay, I'll do this. Just incredible. And, and you know, the story that you told of teachers in your childhood still reaching back, long after you left, making sure that you're headed on the right path and reminding you Mm -hmm. of the importance of education is a story that's told time and time again. And I would encourage all of our listeners to think back, whether it's a teacher or a parent or Someone in the neighborhood. Somebody. Somebody reaches out and does it. Yeah. You know, that's how I got into special forces. I dropped out of high school. I was running the streets. I had no place, you know, really nothing. I had worked as a mail room. Uh, I worked at Yankee Stadium and Shea Stadium selling hot dogs and peanuts just to get some money. But one day I was on the block in a candy store, and here's this guy in in a uniform. Looked really cool. And he was a special force. He's a Green Beret. And I was like, well, I started talking to him. And he kind of injected the reality into me. He said, so what do you do, kid? And I hemmed in hard. He says, you don't go to school, do you? He said, you need to get an education. So I said, what do you do? He says, well, I'm a major. I'm in special forces. I just came back from overseas. He had a master's degree from Columbia, a bunch of things. And I I was enamored with his uniform. I said, what are all these medals? What is this? What is that? And he says, you can get this too, but this is what you have to do. Then I saw many times after that in the candy store, he kept reaching out to me. And then he gave me a card. He said, go talk to this guy. And it was an Army recruiter. And the rest was history. To your point, Chris, there's those critical junctures in your life, whether it's a mom, a dad, a grandma, a friend, a mentor, a teacher, who see you're struggling and reach out and give you a hand, you know, help you get in the right direction. The story that you just told of the Green Beret reminds me of a time that you and I met in San Francisco. And we had dinner. And we were walking back from dinner to the hotel that you were staying at, and there was a homeless veteran who Uh approached both of us. And most people would have looked the other way or said, sorry, not tonight. Uh, You didn't. You sat down and you asked him to sit down with you on the curb. And you asked him about his situation. And you struck up a conversation with a homeless veteran to understand why they were in the situation that they're in and to provide to them that same fatherly advice to get their life in order and get it back on track. Most would have simply moved on. What motivates you to take the time to talk with people 
and to transform their way of thinking or perhaps their lives. You know, without uh, mentors and a certain set of circumstances, that could be me sitting on that curb. And so, again, for those of us who have uh, enjoyed extreme opportunity, there's responsibility to pay it back. So whether it's a homeless kid, whether it is a veteran struggling, what's the sense of labeling him? He doesn't want to be there or she doesn't want to be there. Right. When I see those things, I try uh, the best I can to see if there's some opportunity to remedy, to find out the situation, connect them with social service groups. I think, Chris, I feel like you that because of who we are, because of the knowledge we have, we try and make our communities better. We try and practice humanity in everything we do and reach out to our fellow man, woman, to make it better for them. If we have some information, knowledge, opportunities that will better the individual of the community, then, you know, that's something that we should all do as Americans. Thank you for listening to the Permanente Medicine Podcast. That concludes part one of our interview. There's a lot more fascinating insight to come as this conversation continues. So be sure to listen to part two. You can stream other episodes of our podcast by visiting Permanente.org or by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. We'll see you next time. The opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and are not necessarily the views of Kaiser Permanente, the Permanente Medical Groups, or the Permanente Federation.